Welcome to Sex Care is Self-Care, a conversation on women's sexual health brought to you by the Patty Brisbane Foundation for Women's Sexual Health. I'm your host, Patty Brisbane. Get excited because Dr. Christine Vaccaro and Dr. Cheryl Iglesias are back. They are both members of the PBF Medical Advisory Board. They're here with us today to break down everything you ever wanted to know about urogynecology and have been afraid to ask. So, Dr. Vaccaro and Dr. Iglesias, there might be people tuning in for the first time. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Yes, good morning or good afternoon. My name is Christine Vaccaro. I am a fellowship trained and double board certified uh, female pelvic medicine reconstructive surgeon. Um, I'm also board certified in obstetrics and gynecology. And I'm the fellowship director for female pelvic medicine and reconstructive surgery, and also an associate professor of obstetrics and gynecology in Bethesda, Maryland. Cheryl? Hi, and I'm Cheryl Iglesia. I too am a urogynecologist, um, and I'm double board certified in the same things that Christine is in. Um, so I am a professor of obstetrics and gynecology, as well as urology um, at Georgetown University School of Medicine. And I'm the director of the National Center for Advanced Pelvic Surgery for MedStar Health here in Washington, DC. It's a pleasure to be with you, Patty. I'm going to tell you, it's such a pleasure. And I'm so honored to have both of you. You're amazing, amazing doctors. Okay, so let's get started here. I am asked quite often, like if I'm out and somebody pulls me aside and they'll say, you know what, I'm having so much pain, you know, during intercourse or I'm having a lot of... Uh, urinary tract infections or whatever. I always say, do you, do you know a good urogynecologist in your area? And they go, you're a what? What, what is that? Um, let's go to the basics. Dr. Vaccaro, start off. What is a urogynecologist? Thanks, Patty. Um, so urogynecology, I like to think about it as the intersection between gynecology and female urology, which is hence the combined name, but it really is quite a unique subspecialty that focuses and deals with bothersome quality of life problems, specifically pelvic floor disorders that can cause distressing symptoms throughout a woman's lifetime. So urogynecology also goes by another name, female pelvic medicine and reconstructive surgery. Some people just abbreviate that to FPMRS. Um, this became a recognized board certified specialty about 10 years ago. Um, so since both gynecologists and urologists can do additional training uh, via fellowship in FPMRS, their, our board certification is actually from both the American Board of Obstetrics and Gynecology as well as, well as the American Board of Urology. Um, most practicing GYN surgeons that have done a FPMRS fellowship refer to themselves as urogynecologists distinguishing us that we, our background was an OBGYN. Um, and this, we commonly just refer it to this way because it's much easier and quicker than saying, you know, I'm a female pelvic medicine reconstructive surgeon, which is a really a mouthful. Um, so a lot of times it's just shortened to urogynecologists. However, urologists that came from urology uh, residency um, prefer the term female urologist or reconstructive urologist. Though sometimes I have seen um, uh, urologists actually term themselves urogynecologists as well. But in my mind, urogynecology is the coolest subspecialty. I don't think I could have found any other specialty that, that fits me and what I like to do, which is help women with their quality of life concerns. Um, in our training, we give, 
we, we get to learn the skills and training to help a woman live her best pelvic floor life, which includes healthy pelvic floor functioning, um, which is not just the absence of diseases like pain and leakage and vaginal bulge, but also we get additional training and also making sure that they have an enjoyable sex life. That's why I love you guys. Um, Dr. Dr. Inglesia, what kind of conditions does a urogynecologist treat? Maybe somebody out there say, that is the type of doctor I need to see. Well, um, I like the term that uh, one of my colleagues at Women's Health Foundation uses, which is, we do health below the belt. <laughs> so basically, um, we're looking at the uh, functional aspects and the anatomical physiology um, and um, disorders that relate to the vagina, the bladder, the bowel, um, and including all the other external structures. So some of the more common conditions that we deal with include bladder leakage, also known as urinary incontinence. And there are multiple forms of that. Um, I think we're going to go into some of the um, different types of urinary incontinence a little bit later on the podcast. Um, but we also deal very commonly with a condition that probably one third of women have and 11% are undergoing surgery for, and that's called uh, pelvic organ prolapse or pelvic support problems. Most common reasons for these drop bladders, uh, dropped uterus, um, vaginas that feel gaping um, and um, a feeling of a bulge. The most common reason is uh, childbirth and pregnancy. And then we also deal with um, um, accidental bowel leakage or also known as fecal incontinence and tears that can occur to internal and external sphincters that keep um, you from soiling yourself. In addition to the um, anatomical abnormalities, we'll deal with the functional aspects, um, particularly uh, as relates to this podcast, the sexual dysfunction that can occur um, with aging and just with other different conditions. So basically think of anything um, below the belly button <laughs> and between the thighs and uh, see a urogynecologist. <laughs> There you go. This is a question that we get a lot here at the Patty Brisbane Foundation. So many women have reincurring UTIs. Uh, should they see a urogynecologist to help with this condition, Dr. Vercaro? Absolutely, Patty. Um, and just briefly, you know, an occasional UTI or urinary tract infection, also called a bladder infection, is quite common. And up to 40% of women in their lifetime will have at least one. UTI. Um, but when it becomes recurrent UTIs, which by definition means that there's at least three culture proven urinary tract infections within a 12 month period, this can cause extreme frustration, pain, and reduce a woman's quality of life. Um, some of the risk factors that place women at higher risk for UTI are sexual activity. If this is the common trigger for women, um, it can make women be fearful and avoid sex altogether and even cause uh, marital and relationship problems um, because of fear of getting a urinary tract infection. Another risk factor is menopause. Um, this is due to a decline in estrogen resulting in changes in the vaginal pH which allow the bad bacteria to inhabit the vagina and that's not good and that allows for easier access to the urethra and bladder. And then, 
other conditions that are re reduce a woman's um, immune um, support, like diabetes, pregnancy, and other immunosuppressed conditions, um, can also contribute to, to urinary tract infection, infections. And lastly, um, pelvic surgery surgeries that we do um, and needing to use a catheter also place them at higher risk. So the bottom line is a urogynecologist will obtain a thorough medical and surgical history, perform a pelvic exam looking for these anatomic causes like Dr. Glacey mentioned, the, the prolapse. Um, and then sometimes we recommend a cystoscopy to evaluate inside the bladder to see if it's healthy and free from foreign bodies or, you know, or are there other things in the bladder like bladder debris or stones that can allow the bacteria to hide from our treatment. Um, but if we assume the bladder is healthy, generally most patients with recurrent UTIs are started on preventative treatments, um, including you know, vaginal estrogen for menopause patients. Um, there's some support for probiotics and cranberry supplements, um, as well as some non-antibiotic treatments like sterilizing pills. And then finally, sometimes low-dose antibiotics are recommended. And just you know, for further education, vaginal estrogen in menopause will restore the normal pH and thus replenish the normal healthy bacterial environment. And there's excellent evidence to support this treatment. Um, like I mentioned, there's a little less data on probiotics and cranberry supplements, but they're certainly not harmful and work well for some patients, um, especially for patients that have recurrent E. coli UTIs for which cranberry supplements can have biologic activity against. Um, for those women that UTIs are triggered by sex, um, generally recommend one dose of a low-dose antibiotic immediately following sex, and this has been shown to be very effective in preventing the UTI. Um, additionally, it's also very common for women to be treated for years for suspected UTIs when in fact they have a whole other condition entirely called bladder pain syndrome, also known as interstitial cystitis or IC. So this condition can masquerade as UTIs, for years, sometimes decades before the correct diagnosis is determined. So again, that's why it's really critical for patients to come see us so that we can determine if this is a recurrent UTI and differentiate it from bladder pain syndrome, also known as interstitial cystitis. Wow. That's really great information. So you're saying that a glass of cranberry juice or cranberry pills every day might help keep the doctor away. Well, let me caveat that. I, um, the juice um, would have to be a very concentrated cranberry juice, and it's really hard to actually get the, enough of it. And in women that actually might have bladder pain, the acidity in cranberry juice can actually make things worse for them. So I generally, in general terms, I don't recommend cranberry juice itself, but the supplements don't have that acidity and you can get the correct amount in, in certain supplements. Um, so for some women, yes, Cranberry, again, especially the tablets, um, I would recommend over the juice plus the sugar, et cetera, um, just might not be the best option for some women. I'm glad I asked that. Um, something that we need to talk about in this episode is bladder pain syndrome. Dr. Iglesias, can you inform us on what is this? This is a perfect segue following Dr. Ricard's uh, great discussion on recurrent bladder infections. So painful bladder syndrome or bladder pain syndrome, also known as interstitial cystitis, IC for short, basically is a diagnosis of exclusion. You have to not have a real bacterial infection. Um, 
And when I say real bacterial infection, there's been a lot on Twitter about this, about people having urinary tract infection-like symptoms without there being any bacteria in the urine. Or some people can have bacteria in the urine, but they don't have the symptoms. I'm talking about a separate cause. And many people don't know what causes interstitial cystitis or painful bladder syndrome. It might be that there is some type of infectious etiology, but most people think there's some type of autoimmune um, disorder. Basically something is happening to the lining of the bladder. The innermost lining of the bladder can have some cracks in it. And then sometimes when urine, which particularly um, highly concentrated urine sits in the bladder, it goes through those cracks and it kind of triggers these painful nerves or the sensations. You know, there's pleasurable nerves and there's, there's, there's nerve fibers that cause pain. There may be an overabundance of those nerves, but the bottom line is it's not a real infection, but you have the real symptoms of pain, urgency to urinate and frequency of urination. Um, that kind of mimic a urinary tract infection. And then when you go um, to the urgent care or to your provider and you give a sample, they're like, there's nothing here. The, the culture is negative. It's not in your head, it's in your nerves. I mean, there's something wrong with the lining of the bladder and something is revved up in um, your sensory afferents or your autonomic nervous system. Um, and so we have to take a very uh, multidisciplinary approach to this. Certainly, as Dr. Bakara was saying, ruling out structural things. Sometimes you need um, images of your kidneys to make sure we're not dealing with stones or ureteral, the tubes that connect the bladder to the kidney issues. And then a cystoscopy, would you take a small lighted telescope to look in the bladder to rule out anything that looks abnormal, foreign bodies, um, stones, et cetera or other lesions and basically it becomes a diagnosis of exclusion. There's some certain things that you see that look like small tears and blood vessels on end. They're called glomerulations that are kind of pathognomonic or what's the, the, um, what is classic for defining this um, for interstitial cystitis. But honestly, Patty, it's an area that needs a lot more exploration. And there's a spectrum here because some people who can have like just some certain urethral and very mild symptoms left untreated, it becomes very severe. And so I think seeing your gynecologist or someone who specializes when you're not just think about your sixth sense. This doesn't sound right. No, I really, it's not in my head. I really am feeling bad. Yes, I know these cultures are negative. Yes, I mean, but something is wrong. Yeah, you have to sort of like explore some more um, to, to make sure, because I think you, you do not want to get into that end organ type of scenario where you're just peeing teaspoons. And trust me, um, that's a very, very hard, uh, hard way to be. If I could just ta ta tack on one more thing to that, um, Patty. Uh, one other thing that I think both Dr. Glace and I see commonly is women have been given um, a medication called peridium or phenoazepiridine mm -hmm. that turns the urine orange. And it's a topical numbing pill that we commonly give for UTIs. Um, but it also makes bladder pain syndrome feel better. So again, this can... Um, prolong how long a woman actually gets her true diagnosis because she's given a treatment, antibiotics and peridium, usually standard of care to do that. 
and the treatment makes her feel better. So again, in her mind, she's, have, she's getting better with the treatments, therefore she has the condition UTI. When in fact, the treatment she's receiving that's helping is the peridium, which is just numbing the, the lining of the bladder, which again, makes the diagnosis so hard sometimes to tease out. So a lot of times um, in my practice, I'll give peridium just as a, a palliative treatment, meaning if this makes you feel better, it's gonna make me feel like you actually have the condition bladder pain syndrome, especially in women that have really feel like they truly only have recurrent UTIs and it helps them and it helps me figure out what the diagnosis is. Um, it, that's amazing. Um information because I think anybody who has experienced a UTI probably has been given that medication. I know I have. And I was always grateful and thankful for that little pill that turned your urine orange, but it made you feel so much better. So this is, this is great information to get <laughs> out there. Um, yeah. That brings us to prolapse. Dr. Ricardo, what is pelvic prolapse? And really, is it common? Yes, so Patty, pelvic organ prolapse is very common. We, Dr. Iglesias and I see this all the time. Um, this occurs when the pelvic floor muscles and connective tissue weaken over time or tear, again, from childbirth injuries that don't heal properly. Um, so again, this causes the pelvic organs to fall into the vagina. This is similar to a hernia. And in fact, it is, it is a type of hernia. Um, women may feel or see a bulge coming out from the opening of their vaginas. And I commonly hear a woman say, I noticed in the shower when I was washing that I felt a bulge. That's a really common time for women to, to feel like there's something there um, that's protruding out or at the opening of the vagina. And that's when most women um, come to see us. Um, we know that pregnancy and childbirth is one of the most common reasons for pelvic floor damage. So um, again, as Dr. Glacia mentioned, one in three women, or about 30% of women, um, will have prolapse in their lifetime if they have um, had a childbirth. Um, and just simply carrying a pregnancy puts a woman at risk. So it's a large mass that we carry around, and that all that pressure over time can, can uh, make the hernia happen. So regardless of the actual delivery of vaginal versus a cesarean delivery, um, the, just the act of carrying the pregnancy increases the risk, but certainly a vaginal delivery is associated with higher risks of pelvic floor damage. Other conditions that put women at risk of prolapse include obesity, again, all that extra weight that the pelvis is carrying, chronic constipation through extra straining and pushing on the pelvic floor, the act of chronic coughing, so smokers, chronic asthmatics, um, and then if, you know, Frequent, if you're someone like I had a woman who was a mail carrier and she was constantly living, lifting extremely heavy weight for her job, um, or women CrossFitters that are constantly doing extreme heavy, heavy weight training. And then rarely, but still, um, we see this, sometimes genetic disorders can play into this. The good news is that prolapse is completely treatable. Uh, we have non-surgical and surgical options. Non-surgical options include pelvic floor physical therapy and pessaries. Surgical options are all minimally invasive, either through the vagina or with the help of laparoscopic or robotic assistance. And more and more women are also electing um, sort of what I call minimalist surgery, so uterine preservation surgery. Um, though it's still more common to have a woman elect to have a hysterectomy, which is a removal of the uterus with or without removal of the cervix at the time of surgery. And this sometimes can also help with other things if they have abnormal bleeding or if they're afraid of 
um, their lifetime risk of uterine or cervical cancer. Um, and the good news is we have more and more evidence confirming that the presence or absence of the uterus does not really significantly influence success of the prolapse surgery. So this gives us more reason to say, you know what, if you really, if you really feel strongly that you want to keep your uterus, we can still correct your bulge with, with a uterine preservation surgery. Um, so really, this is a, a shared decision making um, between the woman and the, and the uh, surgeon about if her uterus is important to her um, in, the, in the surgery. Um, and then just for, you know, delivery, I think some women um, are really concerned about what a vaginal delivery is going to do to them. And some women opt for cesarean delivery to protect the pelvic floor weakening. So, and I'm in full support of this. It's a woman's right to electively choose this option. It's her body. Um, but when a woman asks me about this, I, I just try to let them know that a cesarean section is a major abdominal surgery. Uh, what I call maximally invasive, um, and it has both risks to the mom and the baby. Whereas, you know, if a pelvic floor surgery or if a pelvic floor disorder were to occur after delivery, again, that's a one in three chance, all surgeries to correct the pelvic floor are minimally invasive. And again, if a woman does elect to choose a cesarean delivery, usually that means she's going to want to do that for multiple times if she wants more than one child. So it's, again, multiple abdominal surgeries um, in her lifetime. So again, although pregnancy and childbirth are the most likely risk factors, I still have seen prolapse in women who've never been pregnant, nuns. Again, I've, I've seen this in all, all women. So the avoidance of pregnancy is not completely the answer either. Um, you know, anything from that chronic cough, obesity, um, constipation can contribute. So the bottom line is if you have bothersome vaginal bulge symptoms, you should seek out your gynecologist, preferably one that is board certified and fellowship trained. What was your question, Patty? Um, you used a word, a term, that I wasn't sure what it meant. And so I want to go back. What is pessary? Okay. And I, I think, oh, I think, um, I think that's the next question for Dr. Glacia. Do you want me to let her answer? Absolutely. Sure. <laughs> All right. So uh, pessary is the non-surgical management of prolapse. And there's probably... I probably in my office have over 200 different types of, of devices. These look like little diaphragms that you insert into your vagina. And it's going to take an astute person to figure out what's dropping um, to be able to fit you with the proper pessary. So there, you know, if your bladder's dropped, that's also known as, as a cystocele. Cysto in Latin means bladder and seal is the hernia. So it's a hernia of the bladder into the vagina. You can have a rectocea, which is a hernia of the rectum into the vagina. You can have a uterine prolapse, um, which is where the cervix and the uterus are coming out of the vagina. You can have the vaginal vault prolapse after a hysterectomy with what's called an enterocea with a small intestine and uh, herniating into the vagina. So there are lots of things that can come out of the vagina, believe it or not, there are things that can come out of your rectum too. So understanding this and knowing um, the size of the opening, the degree or what we call stage or the prolapse and what is coming out, because you could be just an isolated rectocele or it could be the uterus and the bladder, which is the most common combination, probably in 80% of women who are uh, presenting with prolapse. So these, these pessaries are shaped differently. Most commonly is a ring, but if you have a uterus in, there's a ring that has a floor in it, it's called support, and there are different holes for things to drain. 
That's if you have like a bladder prolapse with the uterine prolapse coming through. Um, for some people who have kind of wider openings, these rings aren't even big enough. So you need to have kind of occluding devices. Some of them work on suction. They're shaped like cubes. Um, there's one that looks like a, like a plunger um, and it's called the Gellhorn. It's literally like a plunger. Um, there's some that are a little like C-shaped or like an inverted U, which are more for rectocele's. And we even have these devices for people who have prolapse, but they also have fecal incontinence. Um, and there's a balloon that you can uh, kind of occlude the rectum for any kind of seepage. That's a special, they don't even call that a device. They don't even call that a pessary, they call that actual device. And then there are pessaries if you have prolapse and you have the combination of prolapse plus bladder leakage, um, particularly leakage with laugh, cough, and sneeze, that's called an incontinence pessary or an incontinence ring. So honestly, they come in all different shapes and sizes <laughs> and you need to do the right measurements. You need to see the right, um, the appropriate trained person. And honestly, there are a lot of APPs, um, nurse practitioners, um, allied um, um, uh, professional, other, other professionals who know how to do this as well. Uh, but you want someone who has a lot of expertise. And I know that uh, um, there are some um, uh, people in Israel that are actually inventing disposable pessaries. So more on the horizon for that. But there's a lot of things you can put in the vagina. What you don't want to use is a pomegranate that is, or, a, or a, a potato, which can sprout. I mean, you want to use something most commonly made of medical grade silicone. And the question that I come up a lot with is, do you, how often do you take these things out? Can you have sex with them? Um, in general, we prefer people to take them out every night like, a, like dentures, but sometimes you can't. Um, sometimes we can add a string or you can use dental floss to help you remove it. Um, and, but the ones that you can have sex with usually are the ones that are shaped like a ring and usually the ones without significant support. I don't think you can really have sex with that cube. You're going to fracture a penis in a heterosexual relationship. If don't that want that happening. <laughs> I'm glad I asked. There's a lot to that. Oh, yes. We've, we've done studies on this because there's different... Um, uh, medicaments uh, and lubes that you can use to prevent the bacterial associated infections that can occur with, with they don't work that great based, based on our research. Um, so removing it nightly and just washing with soap and water is, is the best. But for some people, at least coming in like every three months or so, actually we've done some research even in the time of COVID and pandemic, you can probably go about six months, but you don't want to keep a pessary in there and neglect it. And we've seen women some of them who've gotten sick or have gone to nursing homes and people forgot that they have a pessary. And that's a problem because that can cause a pressure like um, injury and cause a fistula into the bladder and to the rectum. So if you have a pessary, make sure someone, at least one other person knows about it so that they can remember that that gets uh, appropriate treatment. So uh, everybody <laughs> listening out there, if you have one of those, please make sure that somebody else knows about it. Um, because yeah, you would not want that in and creating all those problems. And it does cause something in the airports. Cause I've had women that are, you know, when you're getting the x-rays they're like, can we patch you down? And they're like, I gotta tell you. <laughs> Hold on. This is what I have. 
Um, what about women who experience urine leakage uh, when they're laughing or they sneeze or they just are walking? Are, is there medications that help with this, um, Dr. Vaccaro? Thanks, Patty. Yeah, this condition is a very common condition and we call it stress urinary incontinence, meaning there's a stress like a cough or a sneeze or a laugh, some quick force that pushes urine out of the body. Um, stress incontinence, again, extremely common, affects one in three women over the age of 45. And now I'm in that category. So, <laughs> um, But unfortunately, to answer your question, there really are no medications to help this problem, at least none that are FDA approved for this indication because this is a support problem of the urethra. So medications um, have been tried in the past and weren't really clinically effective, thus the FDA didn't approve them for this condition, though I do think in Europe, Sudafed um, is used for this indication and I'll explain why in a minute. Um, so one, one special caveat though to treating um, stress incontinence with medication is if you can figure out what is precipitating them to sneeze or cough, you can treat that underlying condition to help them reduce leakage. So example, um, women with allergies um, who take antihistamines that may have Sudafed in them. Um, so that's really common like the Zyrtec Ds and the Claritin Ds, things like this that have Sudafed. This can actually in improve the strength of the urethra and again, then help them avoid sneezing um, that is related to their allergies. For smokers, again, if you can get them to stop smoking, um, so with smoking cessation medications, um, that might help alleviate some of their chronic cough. Um, same with asthmatics, again, if you treat their asthma, again, less coughing. And then, you know, there's weight loss. We know that weight loss um, will improve stress incontinence. So if there's um, a weight loss medication that works for a patient, that might be helpful. So again, bottom line, there's no direct medication that helps for stress incontinence, but if we um, can treat the, the disorder behind what's causing them to leak and make these lifestyle changes like weight loss, stopping smoking, um, avoidance of heavy lifting, which may or may not be um, something a woman can do if it's in her job. Um, and then also keeping the bladder more empty. So we know that a full bladder will have easier leakage than an empty bladder. So emptying the bladder every couple hours um, can be helpful for some patients. Um, other things that do work, uh, pelvic floor physical therapy, which improves the muscle strength, um, though this sometimes can take several months to, to see the results from regular exercise. And then other non-surgical options, which um, we just reviewed with Dr. Glacia, the vaginal pessary, which can put preferential support um, on the urethra. And this sometimes can be worn just during exercise. So if it was just exercise related, a woman could place this just at the time of exercise and then remove it. And then there um, are disposable over-the-counter devices, um, similar to tampons that can be self-inserted, especially if it was, you know, let's say a bad upper respiratory infection, or again, if it was used for um, exercise. Um, other things that we can do in our office is a procedure called urethral bulking. Um, and this um, is a procedure where we in insert a small camera and a small needle to insert material in and around the urethra. Um, though this procedure generally needs to be repeated multiple times to maintain its effectiveness. And then Finally, um, our best treatment really when a woman wants um, resolution of her symptoms is the surgical option with um, the best studied incontinence surgery in history, which is the midurethral sling. And this is a 30 minute outpatient surgery with over 90% patient satisfaction and very low complications. 
Um, but I will tell you that mesh, as you may know, as all women have known, um, has gotten a very bad reputation in the news. Um, so some women sadly are very skeptical and are afraid to even seek treatment. Um, and what I think it's important for women to know is that the permanent mesh used in the surgery to correct their leakage does not have the high rates of complication that have been in the news related to mesh used for other types of vaginal surgery. So if you're bothered by leakage, when you cough, laugh, sneeze, exercise, please discuss this with your urogynecologist. It is not normal and you don't have to just live with it. Thank you. I'm sure there's a lot of women out there that needed to hear that information about mesh because it is out there and you're like, should I go? I don't, I, I don't want to experience any more problems than what I already have. Right. It's um, another podcast, Patty. It is. That, yep. That's what's great about this. You know, I hear a lot about vaginal lasers and radio frequency devices. Uh, what is it that our listeners need to know about the safety and the efficiency of these particular devices? Dr. Vaccaro? Yep. Um, in general, I, I think vaginal lasers and radio frequency devices are very safe. Um, there's only mild pain and brief swelling following treatments, very rare complications. However, this is out of pocket and can be very costly. Um, most evidence for, for laser treatments focus on postmenopausal vaginal dryness, which can be treated just as easily with topical estrogen cream for about $60 a month, and that's without insurance. Laser treatments are usually several thousand dollars per treatment um, and depending where you go. And there's only small amount of evidence that shows that lasers improve vaginal health, but the cost of these treatments really are prohibitive for most women. Um, ACOG, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, came out with a position in 2016 with a statement for OBGYNs, they must present accurate and uh, accurate information on safety and efficacy. And in 2018, the FDA issued a safety communication and warned against the use of these energy-based devices for vaginal rejuvenation or any vaginal cosmetic procedure because these lasers are not FDA approved for vaginal rejuvenation. Um, as Dr. Glacia mentioned earlier, there is a skin condition called lichen sclerosis that is showing um, real promise in the use of laser on this devastating skin condition um, that can destroy the elasticity of the vulva, change the appearance of the vulva, hide the clitoris, um, sometimes even obstruct the vagina. And these laser treatments of the vulvar skin can, can partially or completely, re completely reverse this process in recent studies. So these are promising things in the future, um, but to my knowledge, there are not any well-designed studies demonstrating benefit of laser or radio frequency um, on other pelvic floor disorders like stress incontinence, overactive bladder, or pelvic organ prolapse. So I'm happy to hear what Dr. Glacier <laughs> Okay, um, yeah, this is an area that I really want your uh, listeners to, to pay attention to because buyer beware, this is one of the areas where marketing is ahead of the science. And I've been involved in several of these clinical trials, including one that was called the VELVET trial that looked at vaginal laser versus estrogen and showed non-inferiority, which meant that in this very small subset of women, um, at six months, they seem to be equivalent because there are some people that are not uh, wanting to, or there may be some relative contraindications using estrogen, or they have an allergic reaction to some of the issues. So I think for genitourinary syndrome of menopause, 
we do seem to have some consensus that there may be benefit. Again, the biggest um, um, side effect, I think, is to your wallet since these, these, since these uh, treatments are so costly. With regard to prolapse, there is no evidence for lasers or radiofrequency for prolapse, although I must say that one of our co-board members, Dr. Michael Critchman, has one of the largest trials looking at vaginal laxity and radiofrequency. And there does seem to be some positive benefit. Again, it's short term, it's six months, with, um, which relates to um, vaginal laxity, which is just the sensation of looseness, but it's not full-blown prolapse that uh, Dr. Vaccaro was uh, discussing. So that has more to be, we, we need more um, data on this. And I know if you go to clinicaltrials.gov, there, um, there are clinical trials going on right now using laser and radiofrequency for other pelvic floor disorders, including stress incontinence. Um, but the GSM and vaginal laxity seem to have the most evidence right now. And other than that, I prefer people to be in a clinical trial um, where lasers are covered rather than, you know, paying thousands of dollars out of pocket. And I'll tell you, I operate a woman from Virginia who paid $2,000. She had stage three prolapse. Stage yeah. three means that it is halfway out. And this was her bladder, the vagina, the small intestine, the rectum. She paid $2,000 to, because somebody, um, a urologist and her, the urologist nurse practitioner said this was going to help. There was never, that was never going to help. And I yeah. don't think that that's right. That's why we have this is to get this information because that's all anybody's looking for when they go see someone is just help. And sometimes when people take your money, instead of saying, Hey, here's who you really need to go see. I, it's wrong. But again, yeah. This has been an awesome, and it's been so informative. I can't thank you enough. You both are amazing. Thank you so much for your time. But for more information on the Patty Brisbane Foundation for Women's Sexual Health and our six focuses, go to thepattybrisbanefoundation.org. Remember, sex care is self-care, and sexual health matters.